This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Hewlett Packard Enterprise, providing expertise and infrastructure to help companies transform their business with AI. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, January 10th, The Washington Post brought together pioneering researchers, technology innovators, business leaders, and other experts for Transformers Artificial Intelligence. Speakers discussed the latest advances in artificial intelligence, considered how its applications impact our daily lives, and explored critical questions that will profoundly affect the way we integrate and utilize this swiftly evolving technology, from government policy to medical diagnoses to our criminal justice system. How is artificial intelligence contributing to advances in the medical field? In this segment, speakers weigh the benefits of faster and more accurate diagnoses with privacy concerns. Let's listen. Thank you for joining us again. All right. Hi, I'm uh, Drew Harwell. I'm a national technology reporter, and I cover AI for The Washington Post, so it's good to be here. Um, We're going to continue our program this morning with a conversation that touches a little bit on that, but um, sort of turns into how AI is impacting medicine and healthcare, uh, which I find really fascinating. Um, We're going to talk about some of the larger moral questions born out of the developments in the industry. Um, So please welcome Dr. Michael Abramoff. He is the founder and CEO of IDX Technologies. And Dr. Teresa Zayas-Kaban, she is the chief scientist at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. So thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. All right, uh, before we get started, I'm going to remind you once again that uh, we are using the hashtag postlive. Anybody who's watching this online um, or in the audience can submit questions through that, and we'll bring those up later in the discussion. So um, moving quickly into um, the topics here, and I want to introduce you to both of these people because um, they're really fascinating and provide us a good outlook into this. Dr. Abramoff, let's start with you, uh, CEO and co-founder of IDX. That's a practice which uses an autonomous AI diagnostic tool, uh, first of its kind to become FDA approved. So that's a pretty big deal. Also a practicing physician um, who saw patients yesterday, you just told me. So um, tell us a little bit about what the practice does and how it works. Well, thanks so much. And uh, I will start with saying, like I said, start practicing physician, I'm a retinal specialist, meaning I see patients with retinal diseases, and many of these have diabetes. And diabetes happens to be the biggest cause of blindness in this country. About 25,000 people a year go blind. And we can treat it very well if it's called early and that's just not happening. So patient access is a big thing. And so what we did is create this autonomous AI when they founded uh, IDX eight years ago now, create an autonomous AI that makes a clinical decision by itself without any human oversight, someone like a physician like me overseeing it making those diagnoses where the patients are, which is in primary care and retail clinics. And so you want an autonomous AI like that, well, then you get into patient safety issues because suddenly there's no physician, no human overseeing what it does and what the diagnosis it makes. And so we as a company carry malpractice insurance because we will make errors just like doctors do. And so we carry the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. And that started a long process with FDA and the relationship with the FDA has has been great 
because how do you prove that such a thing is safe? And now you get into clinical trials. How do you make sure there's no bias in the algorithm and the accuracy for different groups? We can talk about more, but I wanted to start with establishing that there is a, a dire need for autonomous AI to drive down costs, to improve quality, and very important, improve patient access where the patients are, that they don't have to come to me and make an appointment and wait three months to get that appointment. Sure, yeah, let's definitely get into that. And Dr. Zayaskaban, uh, you're a, a, one of the chief scientists at ONC, and part of your job is to assess how federal agencies can work together to take advantage of emerging, emerging applications of new technology. What does that entail when it comes to AI? Um, so just to clarify, there's just the one chief scientist that, just the one. that I know of. Okay. Um, but um, our interest has really been um, in understanding what are the health IT infrastructure needs um, that uh, we need to address in order to support AI and what are the related data needs. So uh, the role of our office has really been focused on the implementation and adoption of health information technology. And most recently, we've shifted our focus to ensuring that the systems that have been implemented across doctor's offices and hospitals across the country talk to each other and interoperate. As you can imagine, the increased uh, digitization of health record has really created a resource that could be leveraged for artificial intelligence applications. And we've uh, delved into this topic in collaboration with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, as well as other uh, federal colleagues to really understand what are the data needs, uh, what are the standards needed to be able to make these data accessible um, and usable uh, for AI applications. That's great. Um, let's jump into talking about privacy. It's a huge deal when we talk about data. It's a huge deal with healthcare. Um, creating that proper infrastructure for data sharing, which is, of course, necessary to, to a lot of these techniques, um, how do you think about medical and healthcare professionals, the need for them to protect patient privacy while also optimizing results? Well, for an AI, like for any, essentially any doctor, you need to have access to the data you need, the patient data you need, and you shouldn't have access to the patient data you don't need. And so it starts with that. Do I have a right or do I have a need for, for to, to see this information? And so that's the first protection you need. There's a whole interesting aspect specifically with AI because many times, like in our case, it uses machine learning. Machine learning uses data, specifically patient data, to become better mm -hmm. and, and to be shown safe. So now suddenly you're using patient data and, and you need to make sure that the privacy of these people is, uh, is, is guaranteed essentially. And there's a lot of issues with that because Patients many times don't know that their data is being used to train an algorithm that a company like us is is is, is using. So you need to make sure that's very as transparent as possible. You know, there's a lot of laws and regulations around it, but we make sure that we are as transparent as we can be. Mm -hmm. But yes, very very important. And it's interesting because this is not a new topic, right? I mean, clinical trial, patient privacy. These have been issues we've been talking about for decades, right? But the the addition of algorithms and the you know amplification of AI being used to assess you know images and and uh, health scans like that are there new you you had mentioned uh, insurance and and malpractice insurance for using some of these are there new um, considerations when it comes to this kind of technology or is it pretty much the same school of thought as we've been looking at for a long time? We've been thinking about this about traceability of the data sort of a farm-to-fork uh, model where a patient can know what happens to their data. And so we, 
one of the limitations is HIPAA, which typically doesn't allow you to do that. But it, it, it is, I think, good for patients to know what happens to their data, how it contributes to the AI, whether they want to contribute to the AI. You know, we have seen cases in the past where that didn't end so well. So we, we have a very good opportunity to do well, and we're trying to do the best we can. Mm -hmm. yeah. We don't deal um, directly necessarily with the development of some of the privacy-related policies, but we do work collaboratively with um, colleagues in the Office for Civil Rights within the department, as well as uh, colleagues at the Food and Drug Administration, National Institutes of Health, who fund some of the research studies that would use some of the data to presumably, among other things, develop some of these AI applications. And um, the work that we are more closely involved with has to do with how do we attach things like consent and privacy um, preferences to the data in electronic form, how does that carry forward with the data? Um, how um, do we consent people into studies so they better understand how their data will be used and for what purpose? Informed consent, is that changing now that we're getting into this realm where a lot of people may not understand how these algorithms are being used? I mean, is there uh, a change in how we consider um, whether the patient really knows what they're getting into or what kind of techniques are being used? It's an interesting question. Um, the regulations haven't changed, but what uh, I've seen, and so primarily through a, a large program that NIH is leading under the Precision Medicine Initiative, the All of Us Research Program, they have been um, implementing consent uh, processes with teach-back methodologies that were developed by a company called Sage Bionetworks to ensure that people actually do know what it is that they're consenting to. Now, this isn't it's for algorithms per se. It's for them to share their data, their health data specifically, to enable science and discovery. But there are models that could certainly be expanded and applied in the use of AI. Mm -hmm. Where do network smart devices and Apple Watches and wearables and all of these things that were at CES all week and have been a big part of the AI conversation, how do those fit into data sharing um, when we talk about healthcare? There's more for you, I think. <laughs> um, so that is a whole uh, other realm of issues, um, but an interesting uh, data source. And through the work that we funded, we found that a data source that could certainly be leveraged um, for health and healthcare. And a lot of people trying to understand how to do that, how to do that efficiently and effectively, um, and how to make it clear to people how their data are being used and shared. There's certainly a lot of work to be done in that space. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about, yeah, do you? Yeah, I wanted to make a general point, which is that yeah. AI in healthcare, and especially autonomous AI, has such an enormous potential for cost savings, making quality better, and making patient access easier. And I, I worry a lot, because I've been doing this for a long time, about uh, a pushback because patients and people in general feel it's not being doing the right way, not in a safe way, not in an ethical way, not in, in an informed consent way. And so we need to be very transparent when we're introducing it. We need to focus on patient safety. We need to focus on transparency, as transparent as we can be. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you will get a pushback, like you've seen in self-driving cars a while ago, and certainly all these advantages cannot be achieved. Yeah. And so a very general point, but I think it's important to make. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And talking about self-driving cars and, and the ideas that they're being you know, tested on public roads now, in the similar parallel of clinical trials, um, how can you conceive a, a clinical trial and carry it out uh, while sort of testing those applications for widespread use, but also sort of um, 
you know, uh, optimizing for actual AI sort of um, applications for the medical community? How, how can you, um, you know, benefit both sides and, and clinical trials? Has that changed at all? It's not so much change, it depends on how you want to do it. So AI is not new, it has been done for decades in healthcare. You know, in the 60s they were making algorithms. It's the first time now, since last year, that we got FDA approval that the decision system is making a clinical decision without a human, that's new. And so patient safety is important and laboratory studies have shown that these, these systems work but that's not the same as showing their work in a clinical environment, in a primary care clinic, in a retail setting where people don't have much training for the retinal images that I'm used to. Mm -hmm. And so the AI needs to work in that environment. So it's very important that you test it and validate it as a system with the people in the primary care clinics, with the training in the primary care clinics, with a camera that's robotic and with the AI and even an assistive AI that helps the operator to get, take, in our case, good quality images. So you need to validate that. And that's the same as self-driving cars on a racetrack without pedestrians and, and kids running after a ball. That's one thing, but now you trust it in the real world, that's very different. And it turns out that the results are different. And now you still need to be safe. And so it's so important to do the clinical trials, right? In the right environment, with the right algorithms, and we can talk about that, but it's a different subject. Otherwise, you cannot guarantee patient safety. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it, in, in a sense, it's no different than any other clinical intervention where you do uh, lab-based testing and validation. You do the same with health information technology system. You make sure the software runs, there's no bugs, but then you actually have to test it in, in context and see how it impacts clinical care, whether the workforce is prepared and adequately trained to use it, what impacts unexpected outcomes um, come from the interaction between the application and the delivery system. Mm -hmm. Uh, you may have noticed that there's a government shutdown going on. Um, uh, I think we're in day 20 or so. How has that affected your work or the medical regulatory community at large? My work, uh, personally, it has not. Um, we're open for business and working, and I'm grateful for that. And what about sort of, I mean, on, on healthcare or research or? Um, I, I can't say broadly but a lot of the U.S. Department of Health and Sur Human Services is, is mm -hmm. working, so a lot of my federal colleagues are working. That's great. Um, I think we are starting to get some questions in, so keep mm -hmm. those coming. Um, I, I wanted to go sort of more into the ethical concerns um, that you had brought up. Uh, robots in the lab, robots in the clinic, the hospital, are we seeing those being used um, more often now or operating on patients? What, what do you feel like is the near to midterm um, uh, priority for use of automated machines? So uh, just to take a step back, a lot of the, the interest um, or our interest in, in this topic came from the fact that um, more broadly, there's a lot of uh, increased interest in AI and a lot of progress has been made. Um, both because there's a lot more computational power to be able to run these algorithms and also because there's vast quantities of uh, high quality data that can be used to uh, both develop and test the algorithms and make sure they run. So um, we took a look at AI to see if sort of the time was right um, 
um, for us to, to see how it could be applied in, in healthcare and how it could improve quality, and it is, but a lot of the applications have been in image processing. So earlier there were some comments about sort of the, the gamut of AI applications and what that includes. A lot of the progress is, that has been made is in the space that Dr. Abramoff is in, which has to do with, with uh, images and how those um, get used in process, so yeah. yeah. Dr. Abramoff, one question from Twitter, actually. Um, in the use of AI for identification of retinopathy, doesn't this raise the issue of accountability and malpractice? Absolutely, and, and so like I said, we have malpractice insurance, uh, and AI is not perfect, doctors are not perfect. The AI we use is better than me, I can say, the FDA allows me to say that, <laughs> so it's better than me as a retinal specialist, fellowship trained retinal specialist. But uh, no, definitely that's an issue and it will not be perfect, it will make errors, that will happen. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. We, you know, if you try to hide that, it's going to end up badly. So we need to be open about that. But studies show that physicians, ophthalmologists, trained ophthalmologists have a sensitivity of about 30 to 70 percent. Uh, in this study, uh, the AI was much higher. Um, but how will that work? I mean, you know, thinking about liability when right. it comes to AI, who, who's ultimately responsible for when the AI gets something wrong or there's an AI rendered mistake? Is it the practitioner? Is it the, the technology developer? What, what's, the, what's the thinking on that? Well, we, 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 took a, we took a stand. We said we are responsible because we are autonomous AI. If you make an assistive AI, which many companies do, it assists me as a specialist but I'm still responsible for the clinical decision, so now you can sue me. Mm -hmm. But in this case, the, the physician didn't have the knowledge to, to make the diagnosis. It's a primary care physician, they don't have the expertise to do that. Mm -hmm. And so the AI is responsible, and therefore the company is responsible. Mm -hmm. I mean, litigation will show eventually how this goes, mm -hmm. but that's the stand we took. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you, you cannot say, well, it's autonomous, the AI makes the clinical decision, but we take our hands off and we don't, you know, let, let the, that, that is not going to work. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about AI investment in healthcare, uh, it's growing at a huge pace, uh, one billion industry-wide uh, as of last year. How can the industry maintain safety standards without quashing innovation, um, uh, especially as, you know, more private businesses and startups are, are cropping up to meet demand? Any thought on what the government can do or what the industry can do to foster that? I'd say uh, broadly um, what we found is um, uh, that standards for um, how these applications are developed, tested, um, as well as evaluated for safety are needed that are you know, made public and that um, different companies who develop these applications can use. Um, to sort of say, yes, my application passed this, this kind of standard. So mm. there's, there's a gap there that needs to be addressed. So, um, yeah, please. Lots of, lots of people are looking at us. Can they make it work as a business model? Well, yes, we're, we're starting to do that, so that's good. And why did it take them eight years? We started in 2010 with the FDA. Is it going to take me as a company with a new AI eight years also? And I have to say, we forged a path with FDA together to make sure it's safe, and how do you test it safe, and how you prove that algorithm doesn't have unexpected outcomes, explainable algorithms, very important, testing in the context where it's going to be used, primary care, and if you focus on all of that, it's very doable, it doesn't need to take eight years. You know, we are, okay, so we as a company are focused on bringing specialty care 
into AI and bring it to primary care and retail. And that's what we do, and we do it autonomously. There's lots of applications there that we're focusing on, but other companies are working on different things, different AI, different autonomous AI, but are definitely there's a path that you know shouldn't take as long as we did. Mm -hmm. There's no need for that. Mm -hmm. we, we and the FDA had to learn from each other what is important, what is not important. And does the speed of that put the US or our industry at a competitive disadvantage, or do you need that kind of deliberate pace to make sure patients are being taken care of? You want to take it? Or? And, and so it's right now it's an advantage. So again, I don't think it's an overburden. I think it's the right burden. Patient safety is huge because if we get a pushback, we lose all the advantages and the potential that we have, A. And B, it's helping us abroad. In Japan, in Europe, everyone is looking at the FDA as the standard to achieve. And, and so the fact that we got FDA approval is helping us a lot in, in markets abroad. Right. So um, what I would add is, uh, I can't speak to economic advantage or disadvantage um, globally, but in order for AI to be successful and to take hold in, in health and healthcare, these models are going to require um, immense validation, and that process needs to be transparent. They need to address an area of high significant need. They need to perform as well as, if not better, than the existing standard and have some sort of advantage, whether it's improved patient outcomes, reduce costs, improve efficiency. Um, otherwise, uh, what's the point? And so um, safety is very critical to ensure that these are successful and part of the testing process and all you need is for one um, system to cause harm for the tie to turn the other way. So it's really important that we be deliberate about how they're developed and tested. Yeah. Is safety, you think, pretty much the most pressing concern for policymakers and regulators when it comes to healthcare and AI, or is there is there something else? I mean, are, are, are there specific pressing concerns that you feel like are? I mean, I'd say safety is a concern. The other one, as um, Dr. Abramoff alluded to, is this issue of explainable AI and making sure that uh, what the technology does is transpa as transparent as it can be mm -hmm. and can be replicated. Yeah. There's an additional aspect that we, we you know, we discussed with FDA and wh why we did the trial we did is that making an AI that has a good, a very good result on 10% of patients is relatively easier than one that achieves it in the vast majority of patients. And it was so important, it was actually, there's something called outcomes uh, that you look at in a, in a clinical trial, and it's sensitivity, which is safety, specificity, which is effectiveness or cost savings, potential cost savings, but also imageability, meaning do you get a diagnostic result on the vast majority of patients? If not, if you only get it on 10, 15%, it's essentially useless. Mm -hmm. And so that's another standard that you need to meet, I think. Sure, that makes sense. Uh, um, I think we're sort of running out of time, but uh, thank you so much for joining us. And um, again, keep the questions coming in, and, and thank you again. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.